Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a, a founder that I think we're going to be learning a lot from. You know, obviously he's been spending, you know, I think the past 10 years on this business, you know, with a lot of ups and downs. Definitely one of the biggest Series A financings that I have heard of in a while. Uh, and we're going to be learning a lot about content as well. So I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome Tim Chen, founder of Nerd Wallet. Welcome to the show today, Tim. Thank you for having me. So, Tim, you were born in Houston, but uh, raised in Atlanta, I believe. So how was uh, life growing up there? Yeah, that was, uh, that was a great place to grow up. Um, I'd say it just it felt very uh, normal. And um, it's, it's really interesting. I ended up spending a lot of time uh, in New York and San Francisco uh, after, after college. And it's quite different uh, culturally than growing up in the South. So I've, I've taken that with me. Got it. Because you went to Stanford, is that right? That's right. So why why did you go to Stanford and, and study economics and, and then all of a sudden just landed here in New York City? Yeah, I really loved that uh, Stanford was really far away from where I grew up <laughs> and had a, <laughs> right. yeah, and it, it also just had an entrepreneurial reputation. I've, I've always been fascinated by, uh, you know, the, the amount of discovery and invention that was happening in Silicon Valley. So that was a huge draw. So then why, why after going to Stanford where you hear like all the big stories like the Googles and, and so forth, like coming out of there, you decide to go and, and you know, kind of like going to corporate America. Why? Why? Yeah, that's, well, to be fair, um, I, you know, I got to Stanford before Google existed uh, or right around the time it was being <laughs> right. invented. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, a lot of my cohort at the time uh, was interested in going into financial services for the best career opportunities. And um, I think it was actually a great uh, training ground for uh, becoming an entrepreneur down the road. So then let's talk about your first job. So that was at CSFB. What were you doing there? I was, so I was helping uh, investors, institutional investors like pension funds, mutual funds, and hedge funds uh, evaluate which technology companies to buy stocks in or to sell stocks in. Um, and so it was a really fundamental analysis-driven uh, equity research approach. And in terms of like uh, doing all this research, were like kind of like patterns that you were able to discover on on why certain companies would perform better than others? 
Yeah, it, it took me a well. I would summarize my five years on the buy side and sell side with kind of a simple lesson, which is that uh, you know some companies um, have a lot of power in terms of their market positioning, and some companies um, are competing each other to death. <laughs> and the ones you tend to want to invest in are the ones that have uh, some kind of moats that are giving them pricing power. And a pretty good indicator of that, I think, is whether a company is raising prices every year or whether a company is purely competing on price. Uh, so, um, you know, that that has been really a formative lesson in terms of how I think about uh, business opportunities as well as, you know, how I invest my portfolio today. Very interesting. So, so you actually did um, a couple of stints here in the in the investing world. So you went to Perry Capital after, and then you went to to a hedge fund. Um, you know where you were doing long short equity type of type of stuff. So, so what what happened there on the hedge fund? Because I, I believe that this was during the tough years. You know, two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, where you know people were getting you know fire left and right. The the economic you know turn as well. Uh, so so how was this? being in the in the financial service space during this time yeah it was a you know it was a pretty challenging time um i i was let go in two at the end of 2008 um you know from from the day i joined the hedge fund to the day i left the, i think the nasdaq dropped by 50 percent. so it was a pretty turbulent year um but yeah i i'd say like there were a lot of good lessons learned and it, it was in hindsight a really great experience for uh, just learning how how businesses work and you know which ones uh, thrive in this environment. So then, so then I believe that that when you were actually let go, uh, I think that that was a blessing for you. You received uh, a phone call from 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 your sister, I believe, and and there was something that sparked, you know, a big idea, you know, and this triggered your entrepreneurial spirit. So so what happened? Yeah, that's exactly right. So my sister uh, called me one day and said, which credit card should I get? And I said, let me Google that for you. <laughs> so I, I was a little bit surprised by what I found. I mean, you know, to put it into perspective, I was a financial analyst. Um, I was used to looking at spreadsheets and thinking quantitatively about what the right decision is. Um, and what I found instead was a bunch of marketing materials kind of stirring me in one direction or another. And it didn't really feel like it gave much of a rationale uh, or transparent analysis of why you know one one product versus another, and so I, I created a spreadsheet and I sent it to my sister and some friends and it got forwarded around and that's really where the uh, genesis of the idea came from. And how long did it take you to put that spreadsheet together? Uh, the spreadsheet probably you know four or five hours. I, I had some time to kill, um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, and then I, I think between then and actually turning it into a web app was you know maybe two or three weeks, uh, you know, I, I hadn't programmed in probably 10 years at that point. And, um, it was, it was, but it was like riding a bicycle, you know, I, I figured out how to build a, a website and put it back up there. So then let's talk about the, um, you know, so you, you all of a sudden got this idea, you started thinking about, Hey, I can't believe this is out there. I'm just going to send this to, to, to these people to add some value. But but one thing is to help them, you know, with that research. And the other thing is to actually say, I'm going to build a business around that. So can you walk us through what that, you know, bridge from, you know, adding value to really building a, a business, you know, like what, what was that process for you like? Sure. Yeah. So I would de define the consumer problem is, um, well, Ner NerdWallet's mission really is to provide clarity for all of life's financial decisions. Um, so we, we want to make sure that the 99% uh, get as good information as the 1%. 
who has access to you know great Cadillac advisors and things like that. Uh, so you know, bridging that into a business, I mean, what what I realized once I put up the first version of the website is that uh, no matter how good our product was, our biggest struggle for the next few years was going to get people was going to uh, be to let people know that we exist. And it sounds like a very simple problem, but um, I think I had this incorrect assumption going in, which is that if you build something great, uh, that people will come. I think it's probably why most startups fail. Um, And especially in financial services, acquiring customers is so expensive and so difficult uh, because you're competing against entrenched incumbents with absolutely you know, massive customer acquisition budgets. And so how do you differentiate yourself so that people will uh, show up? And so our entire strategy became, well, let's just be, let's just be so much more helpful than everyone else. So helpful that, you know, we will get uh, journalists to write about us, that we'll get free coverage from the press, that we'll get really engaged people on our website that will spread slowly by word of mouth. Um, But that strategy is actually a lot harder to implement than it sounds. It was uh, really a struggle for the first two or three years uh, finding that traction. And why why did you guys uh, go to San Francisco? I mean, you were in Manhattan when you got laid off. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, it it's not as <laughs> the story is not as planned out as you would expect. Um, my co-founder's uh, wife uh, really wanted to move to San Francisco, uh, so the two of us ended up on opposite coasts for a while, and then um, we ended up uh, both hiring interns, <laughs> uh, me in New York and uh, him in Redwood City, and um, you know. Things just worked out really well with the intern we hired in Redwood City. She became our first full-time employee, and then we ended up hiring a lot more there. So we eventually ended up in, in the Bay Area. And how did you meet your co-founder, Tim? Uh, yeah, so my co-founder is, you know, my best friend from middle school and high school. So, um, you know, you, you hear a lot of advice to entrepreneurs not to work with your friends, but, you know, that one really worked out for us. And and then in this case, you know, Jacob Gibson. So what what did he have that, you know, perhaps was his strength? And what did you have that perhaps was your strength that matched each other weaknesses? Yeah, so I, I would say that uh, Jacob, uh, you know, great operator, communicator. Um, and, you know, he had some of those uh, really natural uh, leadership abilities. And I, I was, uh, I think, very strong in terms of uh, strategy and, you know, uh, maybe... Uh, had done a little more coding and financial analysis. So we, we had pretty complementary skill sets, but still a lot of overlap as well. And I believe the uh, first couple of years, I mean, and you were alluding to this, the uh, build it and they will come, you know, type of thing, you know, you you realized that was not that uh, that effective. So I understand that the first couple of years were were brutal, right? So yeah. the first year, I mean, how, how much revenue did you guys do, for example, on the first year? I think we were less than $100 in revenue the first year. Um, and yeah, I mean, you raise a really good point because, uh, I think every entrepreneur has their comfort zone. It's the thing that you're doing in your last profession that you're really comfortable with, that you're good at. For me, it's analyzing stuff, building spreadsheets, building data sets, um, building, building and iterating on products. But then at some point you hit a wall and you realize that you have to totally go out of your comfort zone if you want to get any further in life or with your, or if you want your company to survive. Um, I realized that I had to pick up the phone and cold call reporters, for example, which was a terrifying thing for me. Um, I realized I had to learn how to uh, use uh, programming languages I wasn't familiar with. I didn't you know, love a lot of the elements of debugging and learning how all this stuff worked. 
um, I realized I had to learn to hire and manage people. And so, you know, just some examples of really forcing myself to do really uncomfortable things. And and I guess, like, for example, like getting with reporters, like, what, what was uncomfortable about it? Was it like how they would judge you or how they would write about you or what you would say or not to say or what was that? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, we th we thought that we had built a, a much better um, credit card comparison tool and eventually, you know, comparison tools for every financial product. Um, but no one was writing about us. No one knew we existed. Um, so, uh, I first of all, I didn't know how to pitch a reporter. I didn't know how to talk to them. I didn't know, you know, what they cared about, what they were thinking about day to day in terms of doing their job or making their lives easier. Um, so I had to, like, learn a lot of these things by talking to friends who are in the industry or, um, you know, eventually, uh, you know, doing it myself and learning by trial and error. And I understand as well that to save money, you even moved with your girlfriend. So uh, I'm sure that she was probably happy, but also not so happy of the trajectory <laughs> of where things were going, right? Yeah, I think her roommate was even less happy. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, little known fact is that, um, you know, for those of you entrepreneurs out there, um, you know, you can use the health insurance plan of your uh, quote unquote domestic partner. You don't have to be married. So if you, I, I was on her health insurance plan for a while. Got it, got it, got it. Really cool, really cool. So then, so then I guess the um, then then what was kind of like the turning point? Because you know, here you are, you know, first year, you know, no revenue or or just a tiny bit, and then you know, second year, you know, it seems that you know things are picking up a little bit, but then you know, there's something that happened. What was that? Yeah, you know, to to be honest, we never really had that step function breakthrough moment. Um, we it was it was all a slow build over time uh we we kind of just did 10 15% better every month i mean there are definitely some you know some high points i, I still remember the first time we covered uh, got covered by lifehacker as just being this really helpful uh, uh site for shopping for financial products and you know we got a th couple thousand people clicking through that day and you know that was the first day where we generated you know over $1000 in revenue um, still not enough to sustain a business, but, you know, it gave some early indications that there was some product market fit for what we were trying to do. Uh, so, you know, those kinds of things really helped energize us, even though the business was not really on sound financial footing until uh, probably midway through year three. So then, so then at what point do you realize, or maybe you tell your girlfriend, hey, I think, I think, I think this is going to work. Yeah. So I think, uh, you know, towards the uh, end of year two, um, you know, there was just this momentum we were feeling in terms of, um, you know, every month we would have, you know, thousands of more people coming and thousands of more dollars coming in. And we definitely felt that, you know, just the the trajectory um, was starting to hit this point where we knew that we'd be able to, you know, start paying ourselves a salary by year three and start to hire our first uh, interns and employees. And yeah, that was a, that was a big turning point for us. And just out of curiosity, like when you have, um, you know, a business where you haven't raised any money, you know, it's bootstrapped and you're, you know, making some money here and there. Like what kind of framework to establish your guys' salaries that you guys follow? Yeah, you know, for for us, it was pretty arbitrary. I mean, we basically paid ourselves zero. And then, you know, we, we had a frank conversation about what we would need to get by uh, for the next year um, in year three. And then we kind of just settled upon a number there. Um, kind of the minimum number we thought was viable. Uh, so, you know, eventually when we started getting into, you know, tens or dozens of employees, 
Um, then we started looking more at uh, market compensation data and try to set ourselves, you know, in, into the lower end of that for, for our size. Got it. And I guess in, in, you know, for a business like this, what kind of, um, and you were talking about like speaking, you know, it was important speaking with reporters, but I guess what were some of the growth tactics early on that, you know, that helped you guys to, to, to let the world know that Nerd Wallet was here? Yeah, you know, um, it, it, was, it was really obvious that our survival was dependent on figuring out how to get audience to show up. So, you know, one of the, one of the things that I really ended up gravitating towards, um, I, I would look and examine every single competitor in the industry and learn what was working for them in terms of, um, you know, building things like links and press mentions to their site. And I would literally um, try every single one of those tactics and see what fit in with us, you know, as long as it fit within our mission and our values, uh, which was, you know, quite a diverse set of things. And I guess in reflecting on this over time, um, I think we were just willing to try more things and be more open-minded and more hungry and work harder than everyone else. Um, and eventually those things started compounding and um, we, we ended up before the the book, the Lean Startup came out, um, we really started in, impl in implementing very similar um, tactics. What we would do is we would look at everything as a hypothesis. We would try, you know, a bunch of things every week, and then at the end of the week, we would postmortem to see what worked and what didn't work. And as a result, we would then come up with new hypotheses for the subsequent week. Uh, so we we became pretty rigorous about this process, um, and it didn't really matter what the metric was. I mean, we definitely did it um, when we were thinking about content marketing. Uh, and uh, getting press coverage, but we also did it in other aspects of our business as well. And I think that thinking of everything as a hypothesis, I think is a very powerful thing for an entrepreneur and in an organization. Oh, for sure. And as you were thinking about like building the um, the business, right? So so heavily, a business that relies on on content like this, how, how were you thinking about like the, um, the early team members and all of that, like who were, you know, the first hires? Yeah, well, so... You know, in hindsight, um, I'm not I'm not sure I would do it exactly the same way again. Um, but we were very oriented towards doing as much as possible with as little money as possible. Um, we actually hired probably our first uh, 20 people, uh, half off of Craigslist and the other half through our personal networks. So it was a really interesting mix of people. We had um, a lot of people roughly the same age as me who are all ex-financial industry uh, veterans. Right. And then the other half were, you know, pretty new college grads who are pretty green. And, you know, we, it, it was a really fun environment um, and, and we got a lot done, but we were in hindsight probably lacking some um, experienced people in more diverse areas. In hindsight, I think I would have gone back and brought in some people who had more experience on things like, um, the HR side of the house or, you know, the paid marketing side of the house or, uh, you know, the product development side of the house. We really had very little of that. And you were, you were talking about like building models and, and, and taking a look at data. So if you were to take a look at the data and, you know, you would, you were to take a look at the, you know, people that you hire via Craigslist, via the people that you hire from your own network, which, which side would you say that brought the best employees? You know what? I so so one of my biggest learnings is that um, there's no there's a very nuanced definition of what is a best employee. Um, so coming out of the financial services industry, I feel like there's a pretty set definition of what that person is. Um, you know, maybe in banking, it's someone who has some business development skills, but also quantitative skills and you know things like that. Um, 
maybe coming out of the hedge fund side, it's the ability to connect the dots and that kind of thing. But I was very humbled <laughs> by my experience in in the early stage because some of the most productive employees um, really were not anything that fit my mold. Uh, you know, people with exceptionally high intuition as to how to make groups of people work well together, for example, uh, or people who had really good intuition in terms of how to make uh, reporters' lives easier by, you know, packaging stories in a way that was really helpful. Like things like this, we never would have uh, figured out um, and the diversity really helped. Got it. And and I guess for the folks that are listening, you know, like the what ended up becoming the business model behind Nerd Wallet. Yeah. So, you know, we think of us as matchmakers. Uh, you know, we match up consumers with financial products that help them out. And we think of it as a win-win for both the financial institution and the consumer. And really the the loser is the uh, financial institution with the mediocre products that people don't end up getting. And then, and then how did you guys go about monetization? Because, you know, when you're putting out content, I think that one of the toughest parts is, you know, this is great. I'm adding value, but, but making money at the end of the day is helping to keep the light on. So, so, so how did you go about that? Yeah. So we, we know that, um, when we create really helpful content, um, people have some small chance of eventually coming back to our site, uh, when they actually need a financial product and shopping with us. And so we, we really think, um, about our content in terms of relationship building, uh, especially on the educational side. And yeah, and then we have marketplaces that people can come back to and transparently compare a lot of different options. So two Got parts it. of the business. And then, and then you know, in terms of, um, because you guys founded the business in 2009 and you went and, and raised money in 2015. So why did you wait so long? <laughs> you know, this, is, this might be a bit of an unexpected answer, but, uh, you know, we've, we've been profitable pretty much our whole existence. And so we really didn't need uh, capital from investors. Uh, but the problem with building a company in Silicon Valley is once you start uh, needing to hire product engineering uh, and design people, um, they really come in looking for social validation. Uh, they ask who invested in you. And that's that social proof is really important in terms of getting people to accept your job. Um, it's much easier to hire people out of uh, consulting or the finance industry when you, you can show them your income statement and they, they understand what's going on. So it was really mainly to hire engineers. Because you guys raised one of the biggest Series A's that I've seen, so uh, so how how much was that? Uh, so we raised sixty nine million um, at the beginning of twenty fifteen. Wow! And in total for the business, how much have you guys raised to date? Uh, so that's the only round of financing we've done. Um, okay. You know, like, like I mentioned, we're we're profitable and we're funding our own growth and really happy about the trajectory we're on. So you had the. Um... And this is amazing, Tim. I mean, your guys' story and how you're able to control your own destiny like that is unbelievable. So I guess the, um, you know, here you have a story where, where you're going out, you know, to get investors to really prove the, the social, you know, aspect of it. Uh, and, and what were you looking, you know, for, for investors when you were, you know, courted? I mean, I'm sure that you had VCs like showing up, you know, at the, at the doorstep of your office, you know, with coffee in the mornings or something. Did you have like <laughs> right. stories like that or not? Yeah, yeah, it was, um, you know, we, we really thought about it. Um, well, I, I was fortunate to get great advice from other entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley. One of the best things about this place is people are really willing to pay it forward. Um, but yeah, I guess the advice I got was think about it like you're getting married. Um, so you should really, you know, have very frank discussions up front uh, about what success looks like for the investor. Like, I, I think every entrepreneur should ask the question, you know, 
how will you decide if this is a successful investment in three years, five years, seven years? You know, what, what is your, uh, what is your time horizon? Um, can you talk me through how your uh, investment committee works? What's your position on your investment committee? How how will your firm decide whether to do a follow-on investment, et cetera, et cetera? So I think just having very upfront conversations about these things uh, really sets the right tone on both sides. So what would you say that, for example, in this case, you know, it was the the answer that you heard from institutional venture partners, IVP, that that made you think this these guys may be the ones? Yeah. So, you know, they're great partners. Um, I think our, uh, you know, they were very aligned around the, uh, our long-term uh, mission and vision. Um, you know, they, they really think about uh, the investment in terms of, you know, are we a real business um, that's, uh, that, that can keep on compounding uh, for years and years into the future of what we're doing. And, you know, with that in mind, uh, I think that we're, we're really good fit for long-term. And the, and the, you know, move, move, shifting gears here a little bit. You know, we we know that the that the journey of being a founder it has the the ups and downs, right? So right. I would say, like, what what was, for example, in in your guys's case, and and particularly for you, a really big breakdown that turned out to be a really big breakthrough. Yeah, you know, I would say, um, you know, two or three times in our history, um, we. I think have not been as diligent as we should have been um, about how we were uh, expanding, you know? And so when, when the business is going really, really well, um, this is a big risk. You, uh, you really open up the uh, gates, floodgates on hiring. Um, and sometimes you don't put as much scrutiny into uh, making sure you're um, doing that really thoughtfully and being really efficient with your resources. There's a lot of temptation to, um, get a splashy office, to do what a lot of other startups around you uh, are doing, to hire the types of people that a lot of other startups around you are hiring. But I think it really, in hindsight, it's really important to sit back and think about how your business is different from every other business out there, uh, what you specifically need, um, and what will make your business successful. And so, um, you know, I, I think it's a normal growing pain of a lot of growth stage companies, but there's been two or three times in our history where we've uh, decided to, you know, really pause, digest and reflect on what we're doing. And, you know, every single time we've come out of it, um, uh, you know, more efficient, more lean and more recommitted to our mission. So I think they've actually been um, very good challenges to run into. And I, and I understand that, for example, in 2017, you guys, uh, you know, dealt with, with, you know, the, I would say, understanding you know like what what the the real hurdle no of expanding so quickly was and and i believe you had to to lay off 11 percent of the workforce so how was that experience for you yeah it's i mean it was obviously gut-wrenching you know these were um people that had helped build nerdwallet to what it was um and frankly a lot of the a, a lot of the fault uh, really lay with me and not being um not not making some of the right decisions around how we were expanding but, you know, for example, um, as we thought about what we were trying to do for the next two or three years ahead, um, especially around building a membership experience that was going to um, help proactively, you know, notify our members when they should be making smart money moves, um, I, we, we realized, hey, this is a big engineering investment. We need, um, we need to really have uh, top tier talent in particular areas of, you know, platform and consumer engineering in order to achieve these objectives. And, uh, you know, the ratios in our company weren't right. Um, you know, we, 
had maybe overinvested in some other areas and underinvested in engineering. So, um, you know, as we as we thought about these things, um, we we realized that um, it, it was going to be really painful, but good for the long term in the company to make some of these changes. And then, and then, for example, like when we're thinking about culture, you know, obviously when when you go through an event like this, you know, it's a you you can't stop to think about culture, right? And and how you know that news is probably going to affect you know other other folks as well. So so how 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 would you say that 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 you go about culture and especially how do you embrace culture? You know, after you know an event of this nature. Yeah, you know, I, I would say that um, a lesson from early on that that I, I realized is that. Uh, it's kind of irrelevant what you say about culture um, because everyone can see the culture and the tone set by uh, me and by the executive team in the company. Uh, so it's kind of irrelevant what you put on the wall. I mean, one of our um, one of our cultural values is candid and constructive, and it's uh, something that I really struggled with early on to the detriment of the company um, that I think I've gotten a lot better at over time. And um, I, I, I'm actually pretty proud of where I am now. Um, but, uh, you, you know, so we, we listed that as a culture and, um, yet, you know, we weren't, we weren't being completely, uh, candid and truthful about like where certain parts of the organization weren't performing and how certain people were doing, say like in 2011 and 2012, and really had to make big changes in terms of how first, how I behaved and then how the, the culture of the company, uh, followed as a result. And, and, you know, at least it occurs to me, I mean, we were talking about this, you know, that, that you're big into measuring and, you know, the, the data and things like that. So, so how do you go about, and perhaps for the folks that are listening to, you know, that, that they can learn from this. So how, how do you go about like tracking, like, like really critical KPIs to determine the health of the business and how to be effective with that? And, and perhaps, you know, share what you have learned so that folks that are listening, you know, can also apply that as they're building their own business. Yeah. You know, so, um, I think on I think the business side is a little bit less interesting than say the uh, uh, HR and operational side in terms of tracking KPIs. To me, I mean, on the business side, we do we do all the standard stuff, right? Like we'll we'll track um, our our new users, we'll track our different acquisition channels, uh, we'll track our conversion rates, and we'll track uh, con- uh, importantly consumer NPS, right? Like how many decisions are we helping consumers make, and do they like our product? Um, but I think internally, it's equally interesting. So, you know, we survey the company every two months and we ask them questions like, what is your confidence level in the CEO? Um, do you understand, uh, do you feel like the work you're doing every day ties into your mission? Um, would you recommend Nerd, Nerd Wallet as a product to other people? Uh, you know, questions like this are um, really important and helpful for having a, a high-performing um, uh internal organization. I think one of the biggest challenges that a lot of CEOs or entrepreneurs face is actually knowing uh, what is going on in their organization, especially once you scale past 150 people. Got it. Because how many people do you guys have now? Uh, we're at about uh, f- uh, just under 400 people right now. Wow. So, and and this is like the first time that, that you've led like so many people. So I guess, you know, you as well. I mean, the other day I was, I think I read uh, that not only like if you're like at a company that is growing at a two x, that means a, on a on a yearly basis. That means that you also, as the leader of the business, need to grow at a two x rate. So, so how did you, how were you able to grow at the same rate as well? Like, what did that look like? <laughs> well, I'll say that it's not it's 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 very uh, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to do so. But there is a cheat code, and that cheat code is to basically hire people um, who have been there and done that. 
and make sure that they work well together. So I'd say like, yeah, an entrepreneur's or a, a CEO's ceiling is really the average of their executive team, right? And if you're not willing to hire people that are better or more experienced than you, then you're kind of going to cap out pretty quickly in terms of what kind of organization you can manage. And then I'd, I'd also say, yeah, you, you feel very different things from executives who are uh, scaling uh, versus executives who aren't. You know, the ones who are scaling are educating uh, you. They're they're pulling you along. They're identifying opportunities to improve the organization and being really vocal about those things. And they're pretty effective at doing it. Um, the ones that aren't um, are having trouble diagnosing what's going on, why things are a struggle, um, are are looking to uh, others for help, um, are you know blaming exogenous factors for the outcomes of the organization. So I think those things become pretty apparent, and it's really the only person in the company who can play the role of making sure the right execs are on the field uh, in the game uh, is the CEO. And when you're onboarding these people, you know, and I agree, I mean, it's all about finding the right people and and and, and then obviously convincing them. But I guess in the, um, what is that question, uh, Tim, that you always ask these people during the process that, you know, for you is the most important answer and, and, and that is really like a go or a no-go? Yeah, okay. So um, I, I asked them how, if they were in my shoes, how they would be hiring for this role. So for example, if, if I'm hiring a, a head of marketing, I would say, if you're in my shoes, how would you, what attributes would you care most about when hiring a head of marketing? Um, and what I'm really looking for is, you know, my belief is that uh, everyone is super busy, right? And every executive is super busy. They have too many competing priorities to possibly do everything well. And where they're going to spend their time and focus is on the drivers that they think are most impactful and important. And that'll ultimately de de, uh, determine how effective they are as an executive. If they can be very articulate about what is important in their role, what challenges they'll face, and how they'll solve them, how they'll build their team, um, then I have much higher confidence that they'll end up being successful. Um, if they have very generic canned answers and can't dive into the common uh, issues that they're going to run into, then that's that tends to be a really bad sign. Got it. And as you're, for example, like building more of the strategic side of the business, like let's say either a board of directors or a board of advisors, like how would you go about that in terms of like the people that you onboard and 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 what's yeah. important to you? So I okay. So my opinion on that one is always been that um, you're you're trying to aggregate a, a a certain set of expertise within your company. And there are many different ways to do it. You can either hire that person as an executive or an employee, or you can bring them in as an advisor or board member. Uh, my approach has always been, hey, if this thing is really that important, go hire the person. Like, why, why stick them on your board? I mean, the person you hire is going to be more embedded and more engaged with what you're doing every day. So, so that's always been my approach. Um, of, of course, it's always great to have a board with, you know, uh, a lot of experience and a great Rolodex, but I, I really see the key stuff as something I need to bring in house. And I guess the, um, you know, I, I wanted to ask you this, like what does, you know, you have like almost 500 employees. I mean, that's a, that's incredible. So, so mm -hmm. what does your day look like? <laughs> well, um, I, I would describe it this way. Uh, you know, when we were sub a uh, hundred people, uh, my product was uh, NerdWallet, the website and the app. Um, and the, you know, hundred million plus people <laughs> coming. Um, but today I think about my product purely is the organization. 
So it's almost like uh, running a government, right? Like you have to, uh, you're, you're the regulator, uh, you write the laws, you enforce the laws, uh, you and the executive team, and uh, you determine the culture based on how you behave. And so these things, um, and, and you create the processes uh, that the company adheres to. And this is a really complex problem. Um, if you get this right, the company creates immense economic returns and has really happy and engaged employees. Uh, if you do this wrong, it's fine too. I mean, you're, hey, you're paying people. Ultimately, you can be the least selfish, self-aware jerk you want to be, and no one's going to really say anything to you, right? Um, but you're not going to get great results as a company. And so, you know, I think the whole key to running a 500-person company is to just obsessively focus on your product, which is the company itself, the government of the company. And I guess as a as a CEO, let's say of a of a hyper growth business, you know of this nature, what are the three main responsibilities? Because there's a lot of people talking about yes, you know CEO, COO, whatever that is, especially during the early days. But you know, especially for the folks that are listening, that maybe they're like more at the earlier stages and thinking how they're going to diversify responsibilities with their co-founders. What would you say are like the three main responsibilities of the CEO? Ah, uh, okay. I would say, uh, number one, make sure you have cash in the bank. <laughs> uh, number two, <laughs> make sure you have the right players on the field because only you can uh, only you can make sure that the you have the right talent to get the job done and that you're uh, asking people to move on when the fit is not right. Uh, and then lastly, you're setting the government of the company. Uh, so uh, only the CEO can... Uh, disproportionately affect the values and culture of the company. Got it. Really, really cool. And and now everyone is talking about content, you know, and content marketing and, you know, and all of that stuff. So so what have you learned about, about you know, the content, you know, landscape as a whole? Yeah. I, so my opinion on this is that um, content marketing isn't right for everyone, uh, but for, I think, financial services, it's especially important. Um, I think consumers are uh, very hungry for authenticity uh, and just, uh, you know, plain, uh, just plain spoken advice. And, you know, that was a real opportunity for us to differentiate as a brand because, you know, people in our industry had been so heavily oriented towards marketing and uh, monetization that the products just didn't really feel right in terms of consumer need. Um, I've, I've learned that content marketing is a really hard and slow process. It's very challenging under the venture context because you're not going to get the returns that venture capitalists expect. Uh, for us being a bootstrap company and having three, four, five, six years to prove it out uh, before we actually took investing uh, was really important. Um, I imagine in the venture context, you would be getting a lot of pressure early on uh, to pivot away from content marketing towards uh, doing things like buying Google AdWords to show those quick returns uh, and to try to scale up that way. Uh, so I'd, I'd say it's a much better fit for a bootstrap company than a venture back company as well. Yeah. I mean, I actually think, you know, they, my, my personal opinion is that anyone, you know, in their mother can just grab a, a bunch of, you know, a couple of millions and just dump it into Facebook ads and, and Google ads and, and get people in the door. I think that building a sustainable uh, I, I would say channel that, that brings, you know, like people in the door is, is the toughest part. Right. Right. It is. It, it, if you think about it, the, the strategy of content marketing effectively, uh, can be at diametric odds, uh, with paid marketing because, 
uh, the things that make content marketing successful uh, would not be effective in paid marketing. Uh, when, when your business is primarily focused on paid marketing, you're thinking only about revenue per visitor. And you're going to make decisions on things like uh, content and page layout, et cetera, that are going to be um, not optimized for uh, authenticity and being helpful in building trust. So I guess for, for a business, you know, for any business, you know, and especially for all the people that, that are listening now, what would, what would be the questions or let's say the question that they need to ask themselves on, on whether or not, you know, to understand that content marketing is the right fit for their business? Yeah, I would say, um, is there, oh, okay. So in my opinion, I would ask, is there a lack of authenticity and trust in the space? And if there is, then I think there's a big opportunity to create a differentiated brand um, that's more uh, driven by uh, trust than it is by uh, ubiquity driven by marketing. Really interesting. So I guess, uh, Tim, in a world where the vision of NerdWallet is fully realized, what does that world look like? <laughs> I'd like to think of it as um, one day uh, money will be pretty idiot proof. I can be an idiot at times. And I think, you know, what that looks like really is that um, you you have an account with NerdWallet. Uh, no matter what you need to do, uh, if you're shopping for a new product or trying to get educated on something, or you just want us to watch your back and tell you uh, when you should be putting money in an IRA or refinancing your student loans, et cetera, uh, we do that for you. Uh, so I think this reality is coming in the next couple of years. Uh, the technology is making it possible and we're really making the investment on our end to make it possible as well. Got it. And, you know, you've been, you've been now with a nerd wallet, you know, for 10 years now. So, I mean, you've, you've been around the block and, you know, like we were saying, you know, the ups and downs, you know, have been, you know, part of the, uh, part, part, part of what, you know, you've been dealing with. So, so I guess knowing what, you know, now, Tim, if you had the opportunity to go back and have a chat with your younger self, with, uh, you know, that person that perhaps just got laid off from the hedge fund and, you know, was uh, rolling up the thumbs and, and thinking, you know, like maybe, you know, I, I'll go at this idea or not and start a business from it. What would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to yourself? For? Um, I, I, would, I would tell myself it takes a lot of ego and self-delusion to start a business. Um, but it takes a lot of humility to, uh, make your business survive and, um, and to the faster you find that humility, the faster your business will grow. And I'll just give you a funny early anecdote. Like I, I was, I had built this spreadsheet. I was so convinced that this was like the most helpful product on earth. And then I showed my roommate and, um, at the time he just looked at it and was totally confused. And he's like, I, I don't get what this website is. And then my reaction was, I thought he was stupid. And this is probably the dumbest thing an entrepreneur can ever do is when um, other people don't get what you're trying to do to not listen to them. And so over time, uh, we really uh, unblocked our speed of learning by um, starting to treat everything as a hypothesis and starting to behave with a lot more humility. That's amazing. That's amazing, Tim. So for the people that are listening, uh, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi, Tim? Oh, yeah. Well, uh, you can you can find me on Twitter, uh, TimChen82. Uh, and yeah, you can find us on nerdwallet.com or the App Store as well. Amazing. Well, Tim, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. All right. Thanks for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. 
And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.